Good morning, Epiphany. Good to be with you this morning. Delighted and honored to be gathered with uh, God's people, celebrating and worshiping the presence of our King. I mean, truth is, His presence is everywhere. You could have stayed home and His presence would have been there. But there's something about experiencing the presence of God corporately with the body. So you should look at your neighbor and just say, I'm happy to see you this morning. Turn to somebody else and just give them a compliment. Tell them you look good today. Amen. Amen. Why don't you guys go ahead and indulge me and grab, grab those Bibles and meet me in 1 Peter. Meet me in 1 Peter. Listen, we are continuing our series today in the book of 1 Peter. We've been going through all of the book of 1 Peter just to try to get all of the nutrients that is in it. I mean, we've tagged our sermon series, Living as Exiles, and we've tried to define what exile is. Exile is somebody that, was, that has trusted in Jesus but is not home with their Savior yet. They are not in heaven. Remember, Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. And so even though you are a believer, even though you've trusted in Jesus, if you're alive, if you're breathing, if you're living on this earth, we are sojourners on this earth. We're immigrants. And so we are longing to see Jesus. But while we're here, Peter does something amazing. Peter gives us instructions on how we should live. And we've been trying to make good strides. I don't know if you've picked this up, but we've been in the book of 1 Peter for eight weeks now. I'm trying to, to go through it slowly, trying not to take too much time. When we went through Jonah, we did larger chunks. We did a whole chapter in one, uh, one service. But while we're going through First Peter, there's so much in it that if we tried to do that, we would miss some good portions. And so I, I simply want to pick up in verse number four of chapter two. Verse number four, and we'll go four through ten. I'm going to read it. Pick me up in verse number four. As you come to him, this sounds like the song as well, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves likewise living st- are living stones being built up as spiritual houses and a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse six, for it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Listen to this. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse number nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, have, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We'll stop there, and I just want to tag our text today, Christian identity. Christian identity. Let us pray. Father, this morning we, we come in, if we're honest, we're wrestling. Many of us are wrestling with our identity. We build our identity, Lord, on so many different things. We build our identity on our degrees, our occupation, our skills, what we're able to bring to the table. We build our identity on our gifts, 
But the reality is, Lord, you don't want us to build our identity straight on the things that we do but, and on, on our personal accomplishments, but you want us to build our identity on something greater. You want us to build our identity on you. And your text shows us this morning that the way that that is best seen is by our commitment to the body. And so, Father, I pray today that you would be gracious to us in revealing Jesus Christ. Woe unto me today if I preach not the gospel. The gospel isn't proclaimed, Lord. We have wasted our time this morning. We could have stayed in the bed. But, Father, I pray that this morning that Jesus Christ would be proclaimed and that he would be the hero of our time and the hero of our text. May we walk out of here falling deeper in love with Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for him. Pray that, uh, that somebody that is struggling with their identity would find their identity today through Peter's words. It's in Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen. amen. Christian identity. When I was in high school, I had a teacher who would often say, never finish a sentence that starts with uh, I am in these type of ways. So never finish it saying I am the worst person. I am a horrible person. Never finish the sentence by saying I am a loser because what you're doing is identifying yourself with your weakness. On the contrary, is true as well. Never finish an I am sentence by stating something that you've done great. I am the best producer. I am the best dresser. I am the best at whatever. Never finish it there either because when you do it that way, you've identified yourself with your strength. And you might be in this room and you might be saying, well, if I'm not able to identify myself with my weaknesses and I'm not able to identify myself with my strengths, how am I supposed to identify myself? Peter gives us the answer this morning. In the contemporary Western world, we typically identify ourselves with an I statement. But in scriptural days, in the early church, they would have never defined themselves by an I statement. They defined themselves by we statements. Let me prove that to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Here's what Peter says. For we are one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Romans chapter 12, verse number five, though we are many, we are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. We picked that up yesterday during our, work, our, uh, our volunteer workshop. And so when you are saved, you are never saved simply in isolation. There is no such thing as a, a freelance Christian. We are not saved, just our relationship based on us and God the Father. You are saved, yes, and reconciled to God, but just because you are reconciled to God, that means you are automatically reconciled with his body. It's impossible for you to say, I love Jesus, but I don't love his people. It's impossible for you to say, I love the Redeemer, but I do not love the ones that were redeemed. It's impossible. And so what our scripture is going to show us this morning is that Peter is going to push you to not be an isolated individual, but realize that your identity is really found when you put it into the, the context of community. Now, this is interesting that Peter wrote the text that we're in today. He wrote the whole letter, so of course he wrote this portion of it as well. Why is that interesting? Because the first time that Peter and Jesus met, this rock stone theme started, a, 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 started to exist when they first met. When Jesus first met Peter in John chapter one, he looks at him and he says, you are Simon. And then he says, you're a son of John. But then he changed his name to Cephas. And then the Bible tells us that's translated Peter. Now, you might be sitting here saying, well, what does that have to do with anything? 
Certainly when Peter is writing this letter today, he is thinking about God the Father in the Old Testament changing people's names. Stay with me. In the Old Testament, God the Father would change someone's name from Abraham to, to, from Abram to Abraham. Change his wife's name, Sarai, to Sarah. He's changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so now Peter is standing before Jesus, which is 100% man and 100% God. And Jesus says to him, you are no longer to be called Simon, but you're to be called Peter. Why is that important? Because Peter literally means stone or rock. Stay with me in our text. This theme of rock or stone will continue. When I went over to Israel, I went to Caesarea Philippi. And if you know anything about Caesarea Philippi, it's found in Matthew 16, where Jesus and Philip are, are Jesus and Peter are standing on Caesarea Philippi. It's a huge rock. And while Jesus is standing there with him, he says, who do men say that I am? First, he asked everybody else and they just had no idea. And then he asked Peter, but who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does, what does Jesus say? He says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my father, which is in heaven. Then he goes on to say, here's the theme, All, upon this rock will I build my church. Okay, so his name was changed to rock or stone, which is Peter. And Jesus says, I'm going to build this thing we call the church upon the words, not upon Peter, but upon the words that Peter just said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, this theme of rock continues. Now, why does that even matter? Why am I even bringing that up in our text today? Because many commentators suggest to us that what Peter is doing in our text this morning is Peter is giving us a commentary on what it means that his name was changed to rock. Many commentators will suggest that Peter is also giving us a running commentary on what it means that Christ will build his church on the words that Peter just said, which Jesus called a rock. Pick me back up in verse number four and see if we can make some sense of this, what I consider a very complex text. Verse number four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This is so interesting. Let me lift up the first part of that. As you come to him, a living stone. What Peter does in our, our text this morning is he starts our theme this morning, pointing our attention to Jesus Christ as a rock. He points to him not just as a rock, because rocks are dead. He points to Jesus as a living rock. Now, why do I say that's interesting? I'm just saying, if I'm Peter, you change my name to mean something masculine like rock or stone, and then you take me to a place called Caesarea Philippi, and you tell me that you're going to build the church based on the profession that I made I'm going to walk with a little swag. I'm just telling you, you call me rock. And when I am writing, I'm putting my pen to the paper to say that you are a living stone. I'm going to put myself in the text and say, I'm a living stone. Why am I going to put myself in the text? Because you called me a stone. Because you took me to a place and said, this is Caesarea Philippi. And you said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. But Peter does something that is absolutely instrumental for each one of us in here that have trusted in Jesus. He takes the attention off of himself and he puts it on Jesus. First rule of Christian identity is that you have no identity. Christian's identity is solely found in the work of Jesus Christ. That's your identity. 
Many of us are so, that's why we run through so many identity crises and identity issues. We run through that stuff because we don't realize that Christ is our ultimate identity. Only if you've trusted in him. If you've trusted him, he is your all. And Peter says, listen, I could write in here that I'm the living stone and be somewhat accurate because in the next verse, he's going to call us living stones. So I could have called myself the living stone, but he does not do that. In our text this morning, he says, no, Christ and Christ alone is the living stone. If you in this room identify yourself more with your occupation or more with your giftings than you do your Jesus, you should check yourself. You should identify yourself. The people should know you not by your skills. People shouldn't know you based on how good you do things, how much you kill it at work. They should first know you by that person loves Jesus and secondary by your skill or by your degree. But what we do is we want to floss with what we got. Now, here's how Paul would have identified himself. Paul in our in, in our New Testament over and over again, like no one, no one that I know of in the scriptures was more Christ centered than Paul. Christ identified, I mean, Paul identified himself so much that he would say things in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, like, for I decided to know nothing amongst you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. He would go on to say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He would go on to the, the couple of verses later in Philippians 1, 27, says, only let your manner of life be counted worthy of the gospel. Paul identified himself as one that was a follower of Jesus, and so does Peter because he does not identify himself as the living stone. He identifies Jesus in our text this morning as a living stone. Let's not run past the fact, though, that Peter calls him a living stone. This means that Jesus is alive. This means that he rose from the dead. That means we don't serve a weak, passive king that had no authority over his life. No, we serve a risen savior. And yes, he went to the cross and was meek and, and humble when he did so. But he rose with all victory and rose with all power. And so, P, so Peter says to us this morning, listen, you come to him talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Let me highlight that word precious because that, that word is, is, is interesting for us because God the Father, what that text is saying is God the Father sees Jesus as precious. That's very important because you and I are accepted by God, not because he sees you as precious. We are accepted by God because he he does see you as precious. But that is because because you trusted in the one that he sees as he is altogether well pleased with us in this room that have trusted in his son because he's well pleased with his son. He's not well pleased with you based on your actions or based on your work. Now, this word precious isn't a weak word. If I walked up to one of the dudes in this room and said, yo, man, you're precious, man. Yeah, that would be a little weird. But Jesus is this isn't a weak word for Jesus. Yes, he went to the cross and he was humble and he was a precious lamb. But you better believe if you read the rest of the New Testament, he's coming back like a ferocious lion and he will set up shop. And so the Bible tells us this morning, listen. Jesus Christ is a living stone that was rejected by men. Let me keep going. In the sight of God, he was chosen and he was precious. Verse number five, you yourselves, here it is, like living stones are built up as a spiritual house 
to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let me lift up the first part of that. You yourselves are like living stones. Okay, so we've identified in verse number four that Jesus Christ isn't a living stone. He's the living stone. And those that have trusted in the living stone, we are now a part of a body of living stones, a group of living stones. This is not individualism in our text. Notice from here on out, anytime the text refers to Jesus, it's stone, plural. But when it refers to his body, it's stones with a, with, with, a, uh, with a plural context, singular the first time. With a plural context, we are living stones. That means that if we've trusted in Jesus, you and I in this room cannot walk away and just be isolated. But you and I must walk into this room and be directly in relationship with his body. You can't love Jesus and not love his body. And to accept Jesus is to accept your neighbor. But I'll be honest with you. That's difficult to do. Loving Jesus is easy. Loving your neighbor is difficult. Can you be honest? Like we're messy people. We are trifling people. The only stone within that building that is shiny and beautiful and perfect is Jesus. The rest of the stones are rough and rugged. They are there, not smooth at all. We have issues. And so when we come into the context of the local church, we come in with a bunch of mess. I used to get my haircut from a guy in Philly. And it was a Muslim barbershop that I used to go to. And this guy wasn't a Muslim. He was just straight confused. Like he didn't know what he was. Sometimes he was a Muslim. Sometimes he wanted to identify himself as a Christian. But he was an interesting dude. I mean, he would literally stop cutting my hair, go underneath his little dresser or his drawer, pull out a bag of weed, walk outside, sell the weed, smoke the weed, come back in, cut my hair without washing his hands. Like he was a confusing dude. And the only reason, I promise you, the only reason I, I, I kept up with his illegal behavior was because I was sharing the gospel with him. I kid you not. It's the only reason. And we used to have really, really deep conversations about Jesus and about the gospel. And I would press him on on things that he would say were contradictory. And I would go so far as to invite this brother to church. And every time I invited him to church, he would also always say the same thing to me. He would always say to me, and you've probably heard this from your friends. He would say to me, I love God, but I don't love his people. Or he would say, I'm I'm religious, but I, I just don't like organized religion. You've ever heard that before? This week, me and Gabe were outside and we were giving out waters and ices on the, on the day. It was really hot. And several people that I talked to was like, yeah, man, I, I love God, but I, I, don't, I don't mess around with church. I don't, I don't like his people. Listen to me. I'm telling you, that is impossible. It is impossible for you to say, I love the bride, but I don't, I don't, I don't I love the bride. I don't love the groom. I don't love the body. You can't love me and not love Ty. It's just that simple. Like, we got issues if you say, no, I love you, but Ty can't do, or vice versa. Listen, you love Jesus, you must automatically love his body. And like I said before, we have issues. If you're running from church hurt, if you're in this room and you've come from another church and you're like, listen, I'm coming here because people are nice and people are smiling and I want to be a part of this body because, you know, there's no church hurt here. Yes, there is church hurt here. And I can promise if you come long enough, we'll light you up too. Unintentionally, but we will do it. 
Why? Because you, when you're baptized into his body, you, you have to endure. No one always gets along with their brother and their sister. You fight. But the, but a, the, the community is supposed to, they're supposed to stay together no matter what. Like if me and, and, and Ty in the house are arguing and, you know, we're family, we're arguing, we're going back and forth and something outside hits the window, the argument goes out the window. Like there's no more argument between us because now it's protection mode. That's how the body must be. You must, you may fight, you may not get along, she may get on your nerves, you may want to cuss him out, whatever the case may be, we must stick together. Why? Because the living stone, Jesus Christ baptizes us into a body of believers, living stones. We're supposed to be one building, and we're supposed to give light to the world. The world, we cannot expect to get it together if we can't get it together in this room. If we can't, if we can't be in community with one another, how do we expect the world to come in? Like, they got mess out in the world. They don't want to come in here to our mess. We must try to get it together. And so the Bible tells us this morning that, listen, trust in the church But don't trust in the church based on the perfection of the stones. Trust in the church based on the perfection of the living cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He holds this thing together, not us. Because if we held it together, it would crumble down. And so what we've seen in our text this morning so far is in verses 4 and 5, it's identified Jesus as the cornerstone, but it wasn't explicit. Verse number six is going to be clearly explicit that Jesus is the cornerstone. Let's keep going. Verse number six. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter does something here that he's done consistently throughout our text. If if you've been walking with us through the book of first Peter, one of the things you'll see on a, out of at least eight sermons that I've went through, through the book of 1 Peter, four of them, Peter has quoted the Old Testament. Four of them. So far, he's quoted Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. He did that in chapter 1. He's quoted Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 through 8. He's quoted Psalm 34, verse number 8. And he's going to quote Psalms 34 again later on in this letter. But this morning, he quotes for us. Isaiah 28. Y'all think I'm joking when I say it every week. No one relied on the scriptures like Peter. I mean, four times he's weighing in on the Old Testament. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we can get to the place if we actually leaned on scripture like Peter leaned on scripture? Talked about it yesterday with a crew that was here as we were doing this volunteer workshop. We talked about what does it look like for you to actually do life and consult the scriptures? Like, what, is it, what does it look like for you not to make a decision without you saying, wait, let me go see what God has to say about that first. Well, but we'll seek the counsel of our friends first. We'll seek the counsel of somebody that we think is doing it what we want to do. But what about seeking the word of God? Peter here, four times in our text, he quotes the Old Testament. And he, I didn't go through it because it's really not explicit, but in verse number four, which we just went through, He's actually referencing Psalms 118. So actually, this is five times. Five times he's gone through the Old Testament. And what is interesting about him quoting Isaiah 28 is Isaiah 28, hear me, Isaiah 28 is a a chapter that Isaiah was prophesying against Ephraim 
for their disobedience. He was prophesying judgment in Isaiah 28. And so Peter pulls out, this is interesting. Peter pulls out a Old Testament prophecy that was against judgment and he pulls it out to talk about Jesus. Why am I saying that is interesting? Because Peter quoting Isaiah 28 and and telling us at the end of that, that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame is really Peter showing us that if you've trusted in Jesus, the judgment of God will pass over you. Why? Because Isaiah 28 was about the judgment of God, was about the wrath of God. And now Peter quotes it again and he says, but if you believe in him, you won't be put to shame. He's basically saying, listen, trust in Jesus and the wrath of God, the judgment of God will not be poured on you. I will not stand before God the Father. Hear me. I will not stand before God the Father and be worried that his wrath is going to be poured out on me. I'm going to have one hand lifted worshiping, and I'm going to have the other hand pointed at Jesus because the wrath of God was already poured out on him. That's the gospel. In 1999, uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, don't laugh at me, fellas, one of my favorite movies came out, Double Jeopardy with Ashley Judd. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but Double Jeopardy is it, it's, a, it's a good movie. That It's really a classic, but you know it's too early to, to, to deem it a classic, so I'll wait a couple years. In Double Jeopardy, Ashley Judd is, is prosecuted and convicted of killing her husband. Well, she doesn't actually kill her husband and she goes to jail and she serves time. She's, she pays the penalty for killing her husband, although she didn't. While she's in jail, she calls her son and he says, daddy, she figures out that he's actually still alive. She gets out of jail after serving her time. She gets on a flight and she heads down to New Orleans and she shoots her husband in the middle of Mardi, Mardi Gras. Why am I saying that? She shoots him and walks away. Why can she walk away? because she's already paid the time for killing her husband. God is not interested in double jeopardy. If God punishes the believer with wrath, that's double jeopardy because he's already punished Jesus with wrath. So you and I, this is the gospel right here. You and I in this room get to walk free. Stay with me. We get to walk free because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. And so if we stand before, the God, before God and he says, you know what? This one sin wasn't paid for. I'm going to pour the wrath on you. Listen, God is not just if he's able to do that. But he doesn't do that. Why? We get to walk free. That's what I love about the gospel. In the gospel, the innocent one gets condemned for our sin. But the guilty in this room, and all of us are, we get to walk free as though we live like Jesus. That is the gospel. And so what Peter is saying in our text this morning, he's saying, listen, behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone chosen. This, is, this was wrath. This was wrath. This was judgment of what Isaiah was talking about here when he originally said it. And then he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice that it says will not. Notice the force in the text. It doesn't say there's a possibility that you won't. It doesn't say that that you might not be put to shame. The text says you will not be put to shame. So I don't know if you're in this room and you haven't trusted Jesus. Listen, it's an important decision you need to make because that wrath I was just talking about, you're going to see it later on. That wrath I was talking about that was poured out on Jesus. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, that wrath still remains. That wrath still needs to be poured out. No sin will ever go unpunished. At the cross, we were not sitting at the cross. Jesus, like he didn't bypass sin. He dealt with it. 
He dealt directly with sin, and so he didn't sweep our sin under the rug. And so the Bible tells us, listen, you won't be put to shame. Note that in our text today, two times so far, and we, we're not even like, we're almost halfway through our text. Notice that two times Peter says that Jesus is chosen, and he tells us that Jesus is precious. He says it in verse number four. Let me lift it up real quick. But inside of God, chosen and precious, talking about Jesus. He says it again in verse number six. He says, whoever believes in going back, he says, a cornerstone that is chosen and precious. This term precious here is a very important one. Again, you and I are only accepted because Jesus Christ is viewed as precious by his father. What does Jesus say? What does God the father say when he sees Jesus baptized? He sees him baptized. and He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He's precious. He's chosen by God the father. Let's keep going because now we're going to see. The rejection of him. So there's there's a group that believes in him, but there's a group that will not. Verse number seven. Verse number seven says for the so for the honor is so the honor is for you who believe. But those who do not believe the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse number eight, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Here's the hard part of the text. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to. So what you'll notice is that some will trust Jesus. If you're in this room and you've trusted Jesus, thank God for you. But the text also tells us that there will be some that is it's clearly presented to them and they will reject Jesus. And what I've noticed as a pastor so far is, listen to me, I've sat across from people that will audibly with their mouth say, I trust in Jesus, but their lives show rejection of Jesus. We can't audibly say, I, I trust him, but our lives don't line up. No, our lives must line up. Now, you guys hear me say every week that if there was ever, if I had any editorial rights over the text, that I would skip over certain texts. But I don't have editorial rights, which is why we're going through all of the book of First Peter. If I could skip over a text, if, I'm, if I can, I be honest with you. If I could skip over a text, I would skip over the B part of verse number eight. Because the B part of verse number eight goes against everything that we believe, not believe in Christianity, everything that our natural self of justice believes. Look at what it says in verse number eight. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word. Listen to this as they were destined to do. Like, understand what Peter is saying in this text. Peter is simply saying there's there's he's describing man's doom. In two ways. First, man's responsibility. That's in the that's in the part where it says they stumbled because they disobeyed the word. That's man's responsibility. But then there's a part that's God's sovereign choice that they fall. Listen to it. I'm just going to read the text. This is a hard one to preach. So I'm going to just present it and just let it sit. Look at what it says. The, the, the second part of that, as they were destined to do. Read places like Romans chapter nine. I'm not going to go through it now, but read places like Romans nine, where in verse 15, he says, this is what God says. I'll have mercy on who I have mercy on and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion on. Like, it's almost like God is saying, mind your business. I'll save who I want to save and I'll I'll not save who I don't want to save. And then he goes so far as to say things like Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated." It's a hard text. It's hard to wrestle that we spent an entire class when I was in college on Romans chapter nine. And the reason we spent an entire chapter on it is because it's it's it pushes against our understanding of justice. But can I promise you in this room that our understanding of justice 
Because what we'll say is God is not loving because that's a part of his divine plan. And it pushes against our idea of justice. But the reality is our idea of justice is faulty. We don't understand justice. We think we do. You know what we say? We say things like, you know, when some we think justice is you get what you deserve. And so we say things like justice was served. But in the reality, doesn't the cross flip our idea of justice upside down? Because on the cross, here's justice. Well, here's lack of justice in our understanding. On the cross, here's justice. Jesus is innocent, so he should walk free. We're guilty, so we should be condemned. But the cross flips our idea of justice upside down. Because on the cross, Jesus gets death, which you deserve. And we get life, which we, doesn't, which we don't deserve. And so this isn't, our idea of justice is, is faulty. This is mercy that we see here. When I was in the fourth grade, I had a teacher named Miss Blackman. And she, one day we came in and she decided that she would do a pop quiz. And I didn't know that this pop quiz was a large portion of our final grade. She comes in, she says, sit down, put your books away, pull out your pencils, got a pop quiz today. So we start to do this pop quiz and halfway through the quiz, I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to pass this quiz. This, this quiz is hard. And it's a large portion of our, of our overall grade, so I'm a little worried about it. Well, what happened, exactly, I mean, what I thought happened exactly happened. I did not pass the test. I slightly failed the test. But then I started talking around when we left out of the classroom, started talking to the other, my other friends, and they were like, yeah, I didn't pass it either. I almost passed it. Everybody's like, I almost passed it. One kid in the class, I kid you not, one kid in the class passed with an 88. But what the teacher did was she introduced me to something that I never even knew exist. She graded us on a curve. What do I mean by that? She took the kid that was an 88 and she, she did the difference between 88 and 100 and she took 12% and gave it to the bottom of the class. And she bumped the kid up that had an 88 to 100. And so what we got was the whole class passed because we slightly failed we pass because of the grading curve. Listen, that's not justice. That's mercy. That's mercy. I was talking to Toyosi earlier uh, yesterday, and she was telling me how I'm putting her on blast this morning. She was telling me how she's ha- she has a hard class right now. And she was telling me that in this class, she's like, man, I don't know if I'm going to pass it, but I'm hoping that the teacher grades on a curve. I'm like, listen, I went through that, too. And I got it was fourth grade, but I went through it. And I, you know, Lord will give you some grace there. Listen, that is called mercy. And so all of humanity is one big classroom, all of humanity. And in this big classroom that we call a humanity, all of us fail. Every one of us, nobody in this room has passed the test. Nobody except Jesus. But here's the here's the grace that that's found in Jesus. God decided to grade us on a curve. And the grade that Jesus was supposed to get, he gives to you. But the curve wasn't that Jesus got bumped up to 100. The curve was that he was at 100 and got bumped to a zero on your behalf. On your behalf. Listen, that this pushes against our idea of justice. But the reality is we serve a merciful God. If all of us, hear me, listen to this. If all of us in this room deserve death. And Jesus decides to save some. Is he not gracious? Is he not merciful? Because the reality is he shouldn't have saved any of us. 
And so this pushes against our natural understanding of the mercy and the love of God. But the reality is his love and mercy and kindness has has moved him to save some. That's grace. That is mercy. Let's try to finish this up to go to something a little happier. Verse number nine. But you are a chosen race. Please pick up the, the, the language that Peter is using here because none of it is individualistic. None of it. He doesn't talk about you at all. He talks about us through the rest of this passage. Look at what it says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Verse 10. You were once, same thing, not a people, but you are now God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look at the language that is used throughout the rest of our text. The language that is used is all a corporate concept. Look at what he says. A people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a people of God. This is a corporate concept. None of this has anything to do with your individual blessing. None of this has anything to do even with your specific individual salvation. This has everything to do with the body. So when I say, listen, Christian identity, your identity is found in a people. Your identity is worked out through a chosen race, a chosen, a royal priesthood, not simply you based on individualism. And so what we see here is a corporate concept. Note the word chosen race. You guys have heard me say it multiple times. Like God chooses us based on ways that we would never choose anybody else. Like God often looks and, you know, you ever went to the lunchroom and there's that one kid that's sitting by himself. You know, nobody talks to him. Nobody wants to bring him in. That's the that's the, the kid that Jesus chooses to put on the team. See, we Jesus puts the outcast on the team. And how do I know? Because many of us in this room were that outcast. Jesus puts the one that we would have written off on the team. The Bible says you are a chosen race. It's a group of us. It's not you. It's not we. It, it, I mean, it's not you. It's we, we, we. I have to keep pushing that because, you know, we often think as long as I do my DNA thing, I'm OK. As long as I do small group, I'm OK. As long as I come on Sunday morning, and I serve, I'm OK. But are you like, does anybody in the church actually know you? Do we know your struggles? Do we know your hardship? Do we know your sin? Are we able to pray with you? Do we know your business? That is very important. When we think of this concept of a chosen race, the royal priesthood. Now, he's identified to us. I'm going to finish up here. He's identified in our text that we are a chosen race. But now he's going to identify in verse number nine, the end part of it, why he chose us. He didn't choose you to floss. Look at what he, the reason he chose us in verse number nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here it is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. Other translations say that you may proclaim the praises of him. Plural. You are not saved to be an individual, isolated Christian that nobody knows. Or you're not saved to be a Bible thumper to say, listen, everybody's going to hell but me. No. We're saved to show off the excellencies and the praises of our God. That's why I said to you, if people know you more for your skill than they do your Jesus, that's a problem. That's a problem. People should you should be a glory reflector. 
should be one that reflects the glory of God. You know, the moon doesn't put off its own sunlight, the, its own light. It, it only reflects 12 to 13 percent of the light from the sun. That's you. That's me in this room. We should reflect. People should know us and be able to identify us as believers. Let's finish this up. Verse 10. You want to, we were once not a people, but you are now a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter started our letter in chapter one in our first time we got together on this book by telling us about the great mercy of God. Remember verse number three of chapter one. He says that he says great mercy. And now he ends this very important, um, this very important section of scripture by, again, rooting us back in the mercy of God. Again, we needed to know about the mercy of God because we just read that some are destined to fall. We need to understand that there is mercy. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you and I in this room have received mercy, the grace and the kindness of God. 